Welcome to the Hutchmoot Podcast, brought to you by the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. If you're wondering what in the world a Hutchmoot is, you are not alone. Let me give you the short version. Hutchmoot is an annual arts conference hosted by the Rabbit Room in which we gather people together around art, music, story, and faith. If you want the long version, check out the website at hutchmoot.com, where all of your questions, or at least some of them, will be answered. Romans 12 calls for us to practice hospitality, or as another translation puts it, to be inventive in hospitality. 19th century author George MacDonald was renowned for how he approached this calling in his own household, in his relationships, in his conversations, and even in his books. In this episode, author Jennifer Trafton, who wrote both her undergraduate and master's theses on MacDonald, looks at ways in which he manifested an inventive hospitality, and how his understanding of it left a legacy that has inspired communities such as the Inklings, the Rabbit Room, and Hutchmoot itself. One of the first Christmas gifts that Pete ever gave me was an art print depicting a scene from The Great Divorce, when the main character has just gotten off the bus to heaven, and he meets his teacher, George MacDonald who is depicted in this painting as this giant golden being towering over him. And the painting hangs above our fireplace, befuddling all who come into our house, because it's a very puzzling picture until you decipher all the visual clues, like a bus in the little corner. It took me a while to figure it out when he gave it to me. But if you don't know The Great Divorce, you would think, why in the world do the Petersons have a picture of a gigantic naked yellow man on their wall? (laughs) It's okay, that's just my favorite Victorian writer. (laughs) It's an appropriate picture um, to have in my home because The Great Divorce was one of my first encounters with this gentle literary giant. Like so many other people, I owe my discovery of George MacDonald to C.S. Lewis. I met him initially in Surprise by Joy as the author of that book, Fantasties, that baptized uh, Lewis's imagination and marked a crucial turning point in his pilgrimage to faith. And I met him again in The Great Divorce as the narrator's gentle Scottish guide through heaven. From there, I found my way to Fantasties and then to The Princess and the Goblin, At the Back of the North Wind, Sir Gibby, and many, many books later, I discovered the, the full truth of Lewis's statement. I have never concealed the fact that I regarded him, MacDonald, as my master. Indeed, I fancy I have never written a book in which I did not quote from him. So many of the theological ideas that I loved in Lewis were there waiting for me in MacDonald. The same abundant imagination, the same longing for something beyond, the same sense of joy at the center of existence. I'm curious how many of you in here have read at least one book by George MacDonald. Oh, that's wonderful. How many of you learned about George MacDonald through C.S. Lewis? Quite a lot. How many of you have never heard of George MacDonald? And you just thought this sounded like an interesting session. Yay! (laughs) I'm so glad we get to introduce him to some of you. Um, So I discovered MacDonald during my first few years of college, when I was also discovering the romantics for the first time, Wordsworth and Coleridge and Yeats. And um, Sehnsucht, that that longing ache that is itself joy, as Lewis says, um, was burning in my 19-year-old soul. I was falling head over heels in love with literature and art. I traveled to England for the first time. I was encountering a natural world of of majestic beauty beyond the little world of my childhood. 
And I remember working out for myself this idea that the greatest works of art that humankind had ever made had a deeply spiritual purpose. Because the highest heights that the imagination had ever reached were not yet high enough to grasp the wonder of who God really is. And here was this writer, George MacDonald, who seemed to be a kindred spirit on that very journey. One of my greatest difficulties, he wrote in a letter, in consenting to think of religion was that I thought I should have to give up my beautiful thoughts and my love for the, the things that God has made. But I find that the happiness springing from all things not in themselves sinful is much increased by religion. God is the God of the beautiful. Religion is the love of the beautiful. And heaven is the home of the beautiful. Nature is tenfold brighter in the sun of righteousness. And my love of nature is more intense since I became a Christian. MacDonald was there encouraging me to climb higher and higher and higher on that mountain of imagination. And he was whispering in my ear, God's reality is even better than this. It's even better. Now let me say quickly, I am not by any stretch an expert on MacDonald. I have not read all of his many, many books. Um, and his, his influence on me is, is more um, depth than breadth. But I can honestly say that no other thinker or writer has shaped my understanding of the imagination more deeply than him. I wrote about some of this and about his views of stories and fairy tales in my foreword to The Light Princess, uh, the, the Robert Room's new edition of it. I hope you've seen it. It's gorgeous. Ned Buster did the illustrations. It's a really wonderful book, and it's, it's, a, it's a really accessible first glimpse of MacDonald if you don't know him yet. It's, it's one of my favorite fairy tales, so make, make sure you check that out. MacDonald was the main reason that I studied for a semester in Scotland in college at the old King's College in the University of Aberdeen, where he had been to seminary. And as a brief aside and as an as a introduction to Kirsten, who's going to talk after me, about 18 years ago, I visited St. Andrews um, to learn a little bit more about the theology and the arts program there. And while I was there, multiple people said to me, oh, you have to meet Kirsten Jeffrey Johnson. Uh, and she was at that time studying or writing her thesis on McDonald under the same professor that I wanted to study with. And I think I called her up out of the blue and she was gracious enough to take in a complete stranger into her home, modeling that very hospitality that we're gonna be talking about today. And I had one of those moments that Lewis talks about, about friendship, what you two, and um, knew that somehow we would always be in, our, in each other's lives. And we, we've kept in touch over the years, and I'm so glad to finally get her to Hutchmoot. She will never tell you this, but nobody in the world knows McDonald more than she does, okay? <laughs> um, so she is the real star of the session today, and I'm just providing sort of a personal on-ramp for her. To get back to my story, uh, grad school in, in Scotland didn't happen for various reasons. And in my late 20s, I went through a painful life crisis. The details don't matter, but it was, it was a, a combination of vocational, intellectual, emotional, spiritual, all rolled up together. And I couldn't really talk to anybody about it. And I just, I didn't think anybody would understand. But I remember writing in my journal that other than burying my, my, my face in Aslan's mane, which was a daily longing, the, the person, that, the only person I really wanted to talk to for some reason was George MacDonald, this author that I'd been studying for so long, um, who had been dead for a hundred years. And I didn't want to write a thesis on him. I wanted to sit at his feet like a child and put my head in his lap and pour out all my innermost troubles to him. And somehow I knew that he of all people would get it. Well, why would I feel that way? MacDonald once wrote in a letter to a friend who was grieving, and he opened the letter this way. Let my heart come near to yours 
and talk a little bit to it. If you're not able to listen, you can easily say to my messenger, wait till I can hear you. The unassuming gentleness of that address to a brokenhearted friend is just wonderful to me. A writer tenderly drawing his heart near to the heart of his reader. He goes on to say in this letter, for myself, I have never been content with this world as a place to live in. I mean, it has always more or less had the feel of a foreign land. The feeling has not been caused by much suffering, neither by any sense of out, outside failure. No, great, no doubt the world has been less satisfactory because of my own evil and great lack. But allowing for all that, there remains a something that indicates that it was never intended to be our home. And we were never intended to feel at home in it. But God has a marvelous bliss and yet a very homely one waiting for us. That word homely, a good British word for simple, unpretentious coziness and comfort. We Americans would say homey. It's like the last homely house east of the sea in Rivendell. That place where you can kick off your boots by the fire and, and hear a good story or a good song and feel rested down to your bones. When you think of heaven, do you first think of the word cozy? You might think from that quote that McDonald has a sort of sweet by-and-by sentimentality about our heavenly hope in the sky. Um, he certainly does look forward to a day when we will come at last to an actual place that God has prepared for our eternal peace and comfort. There's a song in Fantasties and that, that's repeated again in Lilith. Many a wrong in its curing song, many a road and many an inn. Room to roam, but only one home for all the world to win. And at the end of Lilith, um, which is by the way, my favorite McDonald book, but I don't think it's the one you should start with. <laughs> but it's, it's really diving into the deep, deep end. Pete disagrees with me. Pete started with Lilith, and he loves Lilith, but Pete's a little weird. So don't start with Lilith. Um, but anyway, at the end of Lilith, there is a majestic vision of the new earth. Trust me, I'm not spoiling the story by telling you this. Um, there's a majestic vision of the new earth, and as the characters approach the gates of the city, an angel is there saying, welcome home. But to imagine ourselves at a great distance in time and place from our true home is to misunderstand what McDonald is trying to tell us. I went back through my old journals recently, and I found the first McDonald quote I ever wrote down. I love writing down inspirational quotes. I, I found the first one I ever wrote down by McDonald. And this was it, uh, from his, no his novel, Thomas Wingfold Curate. This world looks to us the natural and simple one, and so it is, absolutely fitted to our need and education. But there is that in us which is not at home in this world, which I believe holds secret relations with every star, or perhaps rather with that in the heart of God whence issued every star, diverse in kind and character, as in color and place and motion and light. To that in us, this world is so far strange and unnatural and unfitting, and we need a yet homelier home. Yea, no home at last will do, but the home of God's heart. It's not just that some far-off heaven is our future home. God's heart is our home right here, right now. He stands at the door beckoning to us, the homeless, lonely, broken-hearted ones. And all we have to do is go in. I want to come back in, the minute, in, in, in a few minutes to that image of the diverse individuality of stars issuing from God's heart. But again, here's that word homely, a homelier home, cozy, intimate, perfectly suited to what we most need. As I was thinking about the theme of this session, 
it struck me that one of the greatest gifts that I've received from McDonald, through his fairy tales, his novels, his sermons, his letters, <coughs> is a deep sense of the hospitality of God. In fact, I can't think of any other writer who makes me feel the intimacy of God's welcome more than McDonald does. I thought of two close comparisons. The first is um, George Herbert's poem, Love Made Me Welcome. Does anybody know this poem? 17th century English poet George Herbert. I'll read it to you. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful? Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. It's the sweetness of love's replies in that poem, the the tender grasp of a hand, the smile, the hospitable act of drawing us to the table to eat that reminds me of McDonald. And the other comparison I would make is Rembrandt's painting of The Return of the Prodigal Son. Um, (coughs) I love this painting. It hangs on my bedroom wall, so it's the first thing I see in the morning. And if, if you know this painting, you know that the extraordinary tenderness of the father's hands resting on the back of his son who's bearing his face in his father's robes. And it's no accident, I think, that that McDonald's writings feel like that particular painting to me because the parable of the prodigal son is absolutely central to McDonald's whole understanding of the gospel. We were created to be eternal children of an eternal father, but we've become estranged prodigals wandering in the desolate wastes of our own self-imposed hells, unwilling to come home. And it is Christ who, he says, is leading us to God, our one home of safety, in whom alone is bliss outside of whom all is darkness and misery. MacDonald was a genius at creating symbols that embody spiritual truths. And one of the best things that imaginative literature does for us, especially in our formative years, is is furnish our minds with archetypes and metaphors um, that will will clothe our experiences and our our ideas for the rest of our lives. And so um, repentance looks to me a lot like Christian's burden falling off at the foot of the cross and Pilgrim's Progress. And the majesty and strength of God's presence and care looks like the great lion Aslan. But the complement and the counterpoint to that not tame lion Christ, the intimate, homely love of God, looks to me like the grandmother in her garret in McDonald's fantasy, The Princess and the Goblin, and the sequel, The Princess and Curdy. Saintly father figures abound in his realistic novels, but in in his fantasies and his fairy tales, it's often a mother figure, a grandmother or a wise woman, who's a kind of surrogate for God in the story, who who embodies God-like characteristics and is speaking truth to the other characters. And in the princess books, it is the princess Irene's great-great-grandmother, or as princess puts it, her huge, great, beautiful grandmother. (laughs) Stern and yet gentle, commanding yet loving, ancient yet eternally young. Queen Irene is the the power behind everything that happens in these two books. She's divine sovereignty and providential care, orchestrating all events within that larger plan that she fully knows. No one can find her unless she chooses to be found. And even once she's met her, the princess has, has to struggle to believe that her grandmother is not just a beautiful dream. My favorite scenes in these two books 
are the ones that take place in the grandmother's garret rooms at the top of the palace. The domed bedroom with sky blue walls and silver stars and a shining lamp like a moon in the center and a fire that burns in the shape of roses and the simple workroom where the old lady sits at her spinning wheel. It's the homeliest home you can imagine. And we meet the, the grandmother when she says to Irene, come in, my dear, come in. I'm glad to see you. A loving welcome to a frightened little girl who hasn't even met her grandmother yet and yet is already deeply loved. On another visit, the grandmother wipes Irene's tears away, heals her hurts, washes her feet, takes her into her arms, lays her in a soft bed. And Irene says, I didn't know anything in the world could be so comfortable. I would like to lie here forever. Another time when the princess has just been through a harrowing experience involving a long-legged cat, she follows the silvery light of the grandmother's moon lamp back up to the garret. Oh, what a lovely haven to reach from the darkness and fear through which she had come. I've lighted a fire for you, Irene. You're cold and wet, said her grandmother. The child sat gazing now at the rose fire, now at the starry walls, now at the silver light, and a great quietness grew in her heart. If all the long-legged cats in the world had come rushing at her, then, sh then she would not have been afraid of them for a moment. How this was, she could not tell. She only knew that there was no fear in her, and everything was so right and safe that it could not get in. May I call this my home? You may, child, and I trust you will always think it your home. The princess must go out into the world again, but the grandmother gives her a ring that is tied to the end of the silvery thread that she's been spinning at her wheel. And in the story that follows, that shining thread stretching out before her leads Irene through some dark and scary places. She can only follow it forward, she can't follow it backward. But she knows that she can trust the thread because her grandmother is at the other end of it somewhere. When my own grandmother died and her belongings were being divided up amongst family members, my dad immediately claimed an old spinning wheel that had belonged to her mother, my great-grandmother. And I didn't realize he had done so until the post office delivered it to my apartment, to my great surprise, in pieces wrapped in cellophane. I told them Jennifer has to have that, he said, because of George MacDonald. <laughs> <laughs> he knew that that image of the silvery thread leading us through the world back to our true home was, was very, very important to me. But the princess's friend, Curdie, the brave minor boy who fought off the goblins has a different experience of the grandmother. He cannot see her or her rooms at first, as the, the princess does, not until he's ready. And that day finally comes when he climbs her tower in repentance for having killed one of her pigeons. Love bade me welcome, but my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. And Curdie, who had been so brave, trembles at the sound of invitation and welcome that he hears. But the mistress of the silver moon gathers him in with such gentleness, just as she did the princess. She's always saying, come in, come in. But she has things to teach Curdie and Curdie alone, visions to show him and a unique work for him to do. First, he must thrust his hands into her fire of roses in her hearth. And it is the worst pain that Curdie has ever felt. And yet only afterwards, he finds out that the queen has been suffering that pain along with him. And he emerges from that fire with a new gift and a specific mission in the world. Now I want to remind you again of that line I wanted to come back to about that in the heart of God once issued every star, diverse in kind and character, as in color and place and motion and light. 
And the difference between the princess's experience of the grandmother's hospitality and Curdie's gets at a theme in MacDonald that has been very precious to me, and that is the individuality of God's love for us. He talks about this in his sermon, The New Name, uh, referring to that passage in Revelation where, where the one who overcomes is given a white stone with a new name on it that only he knows. And uh, I want to read you just a brief excerpt from that sermon. Not, not only then has each man his individual relation to God, but each man has his peculiar relation to God. He is to God a peculiar being made after his own fashion and that of no one else. For when he is perfected, he shall receive the new name which no one else can understand. Hence, he can worship God as no man else can worship him, can understand God as no one else can understand him. This or that man may understand God more, may understand God better, but no other man can under understand God as he understands him. As the fir tree lifts it up itself with a far different need from the need of the palm tree, so does each man stand before God and lift up a different humanity to the common father. And for each God has a different response. With every man he has a secret, the secret of a new name. In every man there is a loneliness, an inner chamber of peculiar life into which God alone can enter. From this it follows that there is also a chamber, O God, humble and accept my speech, a chamber in God himself into which none can enter but the one, the individual, the peculiar man, out of which chamber that man has to bring revelation and strength for his brethren. I just found out that um, my husband was inspired by that very passage uh, to write a particular scene in Fiddler's Green about a song. Anybody read that? If any, all right. Well, what, if you read my husband's books, you might hear a little glimmer of that. How many of you have been guests in someone's home and they have prepared your home for you, their home for you um, and your room for you with careful attention to the little details that they know that only you would appreciate? So your favorite kind of chocolate on the pillow or a book that they know you'll love sitting on the bedside table. Or this happened to me once, a pillowcase with your name and a doodle portrait of you drawn in Sharpie pen. <laughs> that was somebody at this conference, I won't say who. <laughs> You already felt warmly welcomed, but now the welcome feels incredibly personal. You are known and loved individually. You have a unique place here in this house. That's what McDonald is getting at. God welcomes us into his heart home with that sort of intimate attention to the unique person that he has made us to be. God's hospitality isn't generic. It's specific. It's personal. We have our own room there, our own secret place. He might do tough work, work in our hearts in that room. His hearth fire might burn us as it warms us, but only to make us ready to take what we've gained in that room out into the world for the sake of others. And that makes me wonder, what am I called to bring forth out of that room as a writer? Recently, I've been thinking and writing a lot about the idea of home in connection with reading and the way that a favorite book can become a kind of home to us. It's the place to which we return to bury our heart when the, the world becomes too heavy and the familiar pages are like a threadbare quilt pulled up over our heads. And as we revisit and revisit and revisit that particular book in different chapters of our life, it feels like, like a high point on a mountain where we can return and see the whole of our life beneath us. And it, it becomes a kind of a carrier to our story. I'm sure that we can all think of a particular book that has served that role for us in our life. 
But if a book becomes a home, it must be a home that boots us out the door again in the world to live. Home is where one starts from, says T.S. Eliot. And that favorite book, that, that dear story, that poem, is where we start from. But if, we, if it loves us the way that we love it, it will beckon us beyond itself. Are there certain things that make, are there things that make certain authors more hospitable than others? More capable of being homes to us? Are some books more homely than others? That's a question I want to leave hanging in the air for us to, to think about as we listen to Kirsten. Uh, but the more personal question for me is this. How do I, as a writer, offer hospitality to my readers? When I was a child, my favorite beginning of any book ever was in Shelf Silverstein's um, Where the Sidewalk In Ends, his invitation to the reader. If you were a dreamer, come in. If you were a dreamer, a wisher, a liar, a hoper, a prayer, a magic bean buyer, if you're a pretender, come sit by my fire, for we have some flax golden tales to spin. Come in, come in. That's the hospitality of a storyteller. First there is that invitation, come in. Here is a warm place, here is a fire, and food and a blanket. Let me tell you a story. And I think that, that the books that we most love are those that feel that they were written just for us. Like that author just knew, they could somehow see directly into our hearts and our minds and knew the longings and hurts that we had and they crafted their words just for us. But the grandmother's fire that warmed the princess was also the one that burned Curdie's hands into a calling, a vocation of discernment. It was the place from which he went out into the world with new vision and a sense of purpose. And isn't that ideally what a book should do for us? Not just be a place of gathering in, but a place for sending out sending forth. It humbles me to even consider this question. Could I ever create such a place for a child? That home for a little while constructed in words and pages. How do I love the individual unique person that will read my words? This is what I want to strive for. I want the reader to hear, underneath the surface of this particular story, a voice saying, dear friend, let my heart come near to yours and talk a little bit to it. McDonald's books feel like home to me. And his voice was the one I wanted to hear in that great crisis of my life and in many sense, because he succeeded in a particular kind of hospitality. In his tender welcome of me, a lonely broken-hearted reader, he showed me a little glimpse of what God is like. I want to end before I turn things over to Kirsten, who's going to unpack this in much more detail. I want to end with an excerpt from his sermon, The Child in the Midst. And I want you to hear McDonald's words here as a kind of invocation. The God who is ever uttering himself in the changeful profusions of nature, who takes millions of years to form a soul that shall understand him and be blessed, who never needs to be and never is in haste, who welcomes the simplest thought of truth or beauty as a return for seed he has sown upon the old fallows of eternity, who rejoices in the response of a faltering moment to the age-long cry of wisdom in his streets, the God of music, of painting, of building, the Lord of hosts, the God of mountains and oceans, whose laws go forth from one unseen point of wisdom and thither return without an atom of loss, 
the God of history, working in time unto Christianity. This God is the God of little children, and he alone can be perfectly, abandonedly simple and devoted. The deepest, purest love of a woman has its wellspring in him. Our deepest longing, longing desires can no more exhaust the fullness of the treasures of the Godhead than our imagination can touch their measure. Of him, not a thought, not a joy, not a hope of one of his creatures can pass unseen, and while one of them remains unsatisfied, he is not Lord of all. Therefore, with angels and with archangels, with the spirits of the just made perfect, with the little children of the kingdom, yea, with the Lord himself, and for all them that know him not, we praise and magnify and laud his name in itself, saying, Our Father. We do not draw back for that we are unworthy nor even for that we are hard-hearted and care not for the good. For it is his childlikeness that makes him our God and Father. The perfection of his relation to us swallows up all our imperfections, all our defects, all our evils, for our childhood is born of his fatherhood. That man is perfect in faith who can come to God in the utter, utter dearth of his feelings and his desires, without a glow or an aspiration, with the weight of low thoughts, failures, neglects, and wandering forgetfulness, and say to him, Thou art my refuge, because thou art my home. 